Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. You're listening to Hammer and Nails. This is episode four. Van Melsen goes back. Okay, Dan, we are rolling. Okay, thanks, Andy. It's Trevor Stewart, Diane. Stick it on silent, I'll call him back. No probs. <clears throat> Hello, you're listening to The Woodrow Show. This is your host, Diane Woodrow. We'll be continuing our conversation with renowned paranormal investigator Peter Van Melsen today. Yes. <laughs> as he recounts his investigation into the Hamilton Horror the widely publicised case involving the fates of several teenagers and an isolated property on the Yorkshire coast. I'm sitting with Peter in the foyer of Rosedale Chapel, here in the beautiful Howardian Hills of North Yorkshire. (coughs) We've discussed the discovery of Grant Smith's body at Sutton Bank, the unusual interests of the group of friends with whom Smith was involved, and Peter's misgivings regarding the strange house and its mysterious occupant at the centre of the case. Now, Peter, Mm -hmm. I believe you had an inkling as to where you might find further information regarding the whereabouts of this strange house. Yes, yes. Fosbridge, near Whitby, the town of the reanimated. As I said, I was all but convinced I'd overheard talk of Robin's Cove during my time there. And, despite my reluctance to return in light of what happened there all those years ago, I was determined to mark the location of that strange house on a map. But before I discuss my return to Fosbridge with you, Diane, I feel I should bring you up to speed with what went on back in ninety-eight, the awful business of the dead coming back to life. Hmm. Well, as is often the case— for reasons I've yet to establish, I might add. I happened to be passing through the quiet village of Fosbridge, when, as fate would have it, a chance encounter with a nervous villager alerted me to the trouble at hand. I have to admit, trepidation was already upon me, owing to the general absence of life in the village, and the twitching of curtains in the numerous windows overlooking the deserted streets. It was following a glance in the direction of such a window that the talkative villager emerged from an adjacent door and flagged me down. Mrs. O'Brien, originally of Cork, had ostensibly recognised my gaunt visage from an article she'd read in Fortean Weekly, and had seized the opportunity to accost me. She was a frightfully pleasant lady. Her voice quivered with every word, and so I felt an overwhelming desire to assist her— and her fellow denizens with what was evidently no trifling matter. Yes, I soon learned that the quiet village of Fosbridge had a problem with the recently deceased. They were refusing to stay dead. 
<laughs> huh. Yes. I imagine Mrs. O'Brien wasn't quite so amused, Peter. Oh, oh no, absolutely not, Diane. And on my part, her account was met by an impenetrable mask of stone. Yes, if I recall correctly, she did laugh, but it was a cold and distant laugh, echoing amongst the rocks between Jupiter and Mars. Soon enough, I found myself sitting in the company of Mrs. O'Brien and her husband, Dell. Sooner still, I held between two chilly mitts a hot cup of tea. This was January of ninety-eight, and, as you probably know, winter on the North Yorkshire coast can be brutal. A little snow had fallen, too. So there I was, sipping my tea, listening to the middle-aged couple recite a tale of ghastly proportions. Once again, it had all started with the death of a boy. Philip was the boy's name. Philip had drowned in a pond some weeks earlier, and, as was the custom in Fosbridge, was quickly buried, without an autopsy or ceremony. They weren't a particularly sentimental bunch, those Fosbridges. Well, <laughs> a couple of days later, the boy's parents—Dave and Janet, I think their names were— had, in the middle of the night, received a visit from their only child. He'd rapped at the door repeatedly, they said, and they'd have opened the door too, if it hadn't been for the voice that shortly followed. A shrill, unfamiliar voice, a waterlogged voice, like the tones emitted by a child gargling syrup. The father, Dave, had stalled his wife at the threshold, convinced that the creature on the other side of the door was anything— but their beloved son. You see, we're not talking about zombies here, Diane, those shambling, mindless creatures transferred to celluloid by the horror-master Romero. No, the people coming back in Fosbridge weren't quite so corporeal. And the boy? I'm sorry? The boy, Philip. When his parents refused to answer the door, what then? Oh, yes, well, Diane. He simply evaporated. Evaporated? Yes. You see, it became apparent to certain members of the community that to deny their reanimated loved ones entrance to their homes was to deny them existence altogether. Refusals to admit their sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, etc., seemed to undo whatever incantation had been invoked to achieve the effect in the first place. Effect? Yes, the reanimated were projections— Projections designed to compel the villagers to open their doors in the middle of the night. But why? Following the case of young Philip, several other households claimed to have received visits in the night from long-dead members of the family. In each case, some faintly heard inhuman vocalization had been enough to deter them from welcoming back their much-missed relative, until, that is, the case of Minget Ferguson— well, Minget was a retired widow, some eighty-five years old, living alone in a small cottage on the edge of the village. Neighbours suggested that she may have heard the voice of her long-dead husband, Frank, and, a victim of advanced senility, had likely answered the call, permitting whatever it was that took the form of her dearly beloved to enter her home. What happened to her? Well— Impossible to say, Diane. She disappeared. 
though a number of footprints in the snow outside her home suggested that she might have been led astray, led north. And it was this detail, this detail precisely, that I felt held the key to the location of Robin's Cove. When looking back at my time there, I felt sure, well, reasonably sure, that one of the Fosbridges, possibly O'Brien, had hinted that the laboured steps in the snow had taken the wanderer in the direction of that which I sought, Robin's Cove. And that, Diane, was why I wished to return to Fosbridge, to confirm the accuracy of those words I thought I had heard some twenty years before. And the reanimated? Was that the end of it? <laughs> well, as I inferred earlier, my good friend Norman Kane later joined me at Fosbridge, providing a number of grimoires from which to study and compare certain rites and incantations associated with the kind of apparitions the villagers had been subjected to. There was no way of telling when and where these spectres would appear, and so a general notice had gone out to the residents to contact Kane and I, should a stranger knock upon their door in the night, and we stationed ourselves at the North Sea Inn, waiting for a call. We were reasonably confident that, if we could catch the ghosts in the act, as it were, we could beat the manipulating force into submission by invoking an appropriate incantation. You know, dispel the spell. But, in the end, nobody called. There were no further manifestations. It seemed that the thing had got what it wanted, in the form of poor old Mingette Ferguson. But what was the thing after? What would it want with an old lady? Well, I've always held that the sorcerer responsible for the illusions in Fosbridge was after the very same thing that our would-be vampire in the Hamerton horror case was after. Essence, vitality, you name it. Sorcerer? Mm-hmm. In my line of work, Diane, a figure capable of tapping into the minds of strangers in order to conjure appropriate visions has to be a sorcerer of some kind. Yeah, a little archaic, but I'm an archaic man, Diane. I'm beginning to see that, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there she blows. Nancy? Yeah? See to the doors, will you? Are we going to have any trouble with the gear, Andy? I shouldn't have thought so. It's weird, though. Weather forecast said it's supposed to be clear all day. It's April in Britain, Andy. Anything goes. Yeah, that's true. Please, continue, Peter. An advancing storm. You know, a friend of mine once described an advancing storm as imminent deliverance. Meaning? That we should yield to nature. Yes. <laughs> but enough of that. <laughs> to conclude my Fosbridge account... Kane and I reassured the locals that, fortunately, though not quite so fortunate for Mrs. Ferguson, the force behind the apparitions had found what it was looking for, and was unlikely to bother them again. We said this half-heartedly, for we were mostly clueless. Nothing is certain concerning such matters. Then I returned to Rosedale, a little deflated, where I penned an article on the subject for the short-lived periodical Journal of the Unexplained. Deflated? Mm. Well, yes, we, we failed to intervene in time, and, well, an innocent bystander paid the price. 
You can't win them all, Peter. No, so they say, Diane. Oh. Anyway, 20 years later, and I was all set to return to Fossbridge. You see, I'd spoken to everybody I could on the subject. Cartographers, historians, etc. And nobody had anything definitive to say on the subject of Robin's Cove. I mean, several individuals I spoke to had heard of the place. It was just that they were unable to speak about it with any degree of confidence. Almost as though the mere idea of the place had been little more than a passing whisper on the wind, and to attempt to retain any knowledge of said utterance would have been too big a burden to contemplate. In the first instance, I invited old Norman to accompany me on my journey, but... Unfortunately, he was otherwise engaged with a rare book fair in the Midlands, and so once again I set out in pursuit of my goal alone. I took a train to Whitby. This was the last week of October, and from there arranged for a taxi to escort me to Fosbridge. The driver, a burly chap with a stern countenance, balked at my request initially. But the offer of an inflated fare seemed to alleviate his concern somewhat. I have to admit, Diane, that his reaction to my request had my concerns aroused. Was Fosbridge's reputation still tarnished by what had happened all those years ago? Or had more recent events filled the cabbie with a sense of dread? Well, the journey was conducted in silence and I was delivered to the characteristically quiet village and left to mind my own business in the centre of town. It was a pleasant day, by all accounts. The sky was blue, and there wasn't the least hint of wind blowing from the coast, quite the contrast to my previous visit under the watchful eye of a winter sun. It's still coming. But although the weather was pleasant, Diane... The same couldn't be said for the atmosphere of the place. Now, as I'm sure you're aware by now, I'm a man who finds solace in silence, particularly when it's found in the calm streets of a quiet hamlet. But Fosbridge, as it appeared to me on that October afternoon, was positively barren. The shops I'd frequented back in 98 were all gone, either boarded up or for sale. And I can tell you, Diane, it looked as though some of those properties had been for sale for more than a couple of years. Well, I walked about a bit, observed the facade of what had once been the post office, and traversed the length of the main thoroughfare High Street, vainly, in quest of a tea room, coffee shop, or some other public place in which to pop in and say hello. Speaking of which... Uh, could I trouble you for another cup of tea, my dear? Of course. Why, thank you. Yes. Uh, I was beginning to understand the cabbie's reluctance to take me there. That foreboding atmosphere was enough to scare the birds away. And it seemed to me that that had been the case, judging from the complete and utter lack of vocalizations from creatures of the ornithological variety. Ah, ah wonderful. Thank you, Nancy. No problem at all, Mr. Van Melsen. Hmm. Oh, yes. Now then, where was I? Ah, just when I thought all hope was lost, I heard something in the distance, a repetitive buzzing, 
the sound of a telephone ringing. A mobile? Oh, no, Diane. This was the familiar ringing of a traditional public telephone. And as I neared the source of the drone, I confirmed the fact. Just picture it, Diane. The quiet street utterly deserted. The faded red telephone box calling out to me across the leagues of silence. To that box I was drawn like a moth to a candle flame. What on earth? Um, hello? Peter, is that you? Yes. Is this... It's Mary. You know, Mary O'Brien. Oh. Why, hello, Mary. What's going on here? Why are you calling a telephone box? Well, I needed to speak to you. Okay. Shouldn't we meet then? No. I mean, we can't. We can't? Well, why not? Because it'll see us. That's why. What will see us? The thing. Uh -huh. It's out there, Peter, roaming the moors. Big and hairy it is. Mm -hmm. Doesn't look real. Just a big old ball of meat with a mouthful of teeth. Okay. It's been feeding on the sheep. What are you talking about, Mary? The beast. Out there, so it is. OK, calm down. Start from the beginning. What's going on here? And off she went. From the decline of Fosbridge following the events of 98, to the recent attacks on sheep and other livestock on the moors nearby. Her fear was a living, breathing thing, much like the beast she had repeatedly described, a creature that was covered with coarse hair, a thing with a mouthful of razor-sharp teeth. Ring any bells, Diane. The beast of Sutton Bank? Mm-hmm. The very same, yes. Huh. And exactly the description of the thing I'd caught a glimpse of on Manchester's Salmon Street. Ooh. I suspected that after the creature had attacked Smith at Sutton Bank, having fulfilled some sort of malign purpose, it might have been compelled to return to where it came from, to that strange house at the heart of a vast forest, and not the house of the illusory world, as visited by the Hamilton boys under the influence of punk, no. It would seek out the houses it existed in the waking world. For, after all, it was now a tangible life form. But what I hadn't suspected was the possibility that it would continue to hunt along the way, driven by an appalling and otherworldly bloodlust. And so... Not wanting to further agitate Mrs. O'Brien, I tried to distract her from the subject of the beast by asking about Robin's Cove. And immediately, and in no uncertain terms, she warned me off the place, told me that under no circumstances should I seek it out, that the bay and the forest that overlooks it were forsaken, that only a fool would want to go there. I'm betting she told you how to get there anyway. On the contrary. Mary point-blank refused to reveal its location. And she wouldn't budge on the subject either. She was much too concerned with the matter of the beast. So, in the end, I had little choice but to explain to her 
that the thing on the prowl was more than likely headed in the direction of Robin's Cove, that whatever was out there, be it an occupied house or an abandoned estate, it was likely the creature's ultimate destination. Did that have the desired effect? Unfortunately not. My explanation might have quelled her fear somewhat, but she had no intention of sending me to Robin's Cove, and assured me that none of her neighbours would either. Forsaken, she continued to say, and that was her final word on the subject. That was it. She hung up and left me standing there in the telephone box. Charming. She was, yes. <laughs> on both occasions. <laughs> <laughs> But if nothing else, Diane, I had been able to confirm that Robin's Cove did, in fact, exist. And so, once again, I returned to Rosedale with another nugget of information, and felt fairly confident with regards to my next step. The only step, really, considering all that had transpired thus far. I spoke with DCI Brent, who once again was at my door within two shakes of a lamb's tail, and brought him up to speed concerning the retreating beast, and the confirmation of the existence of the mysterious Robin's Cove. I was also sure to inform my good friend Norman Kane of the developments, particularly as he and I had spent several weeks in and out of Mrs. O'Brien's company back in 98. Which reminds me, Peter, isn't it odd that Mrs. O'Brien didn't want to speak with you face to face? I mean, you allayed her suspicions somewhat. Just sounds so... odd. You've beaten me to the punch, Diane. <laughs> well, in all seriousness, there was a very good reason Mary didn't want to speak with me in person. A reason revealed to me several days later, after DCI Brent had a couple of officers pay a visit to the quiet town of Fosbridge. She was dead, Diane. Blimey. Died in 98 shortly after Norman and I departed. In fact, Fosbridge had been abandoned entirely. A regular ghost town. Makes you wonder if that telephone box was still connected to the exchange. The call was placed by an imitator. A would-be vampire in another guise. The sorcerer behind the scenes, whatever you want to call it. You see, this thing, whatever it was, was desperate to throw me off its trail. Its appearance in Manchester did nothing to deter me, and so it had sought other methods to dissuade me. However, in trying to scare me off, it had clumsily confirmed the existence of Robin's Cove, and therefore I was very close to locating its lair. But to face it, whatever it was, I needed more, and that would involve a second meeting with Patrick Jones, a meeting in which I might just be convinced to pop some punk, and go for a walk. Uh, and it's that time again, Diane. Thanks, Andy. We've reached our limit for episode four, Peter. Indeed. Fancy another cup, Peter? I drink the stuff like it's going out of fashion, Diane. <laughs> Evidently. Just a minute or so left for the outro, Dick. Hey, Andy. <coughs> That's all we have time for today, folks. You've been listening to The Woodrow Show with me, your host... Diane Woodrow. Today's guest has been renowned paranormal investigator Peter Van Melsen. Our conversation regarding the Hamilton horror 
will continue next Thursday at 8pm. In the meantime, be sure to share your thoughts in the comments section. Until next time. Got it. OK, we'll take ten. You have been listening to Hammer and Nails, a Horror Babble original podcast. This episode was recorded and produced by Ian and Jennifer Gordon, starring Ian Gordon as Peter Van Melsen, Jennifer Gordon as Diane Woodrow, Max Rudd as Andy Perkins, Jess Gordon as Nancy Peterson, Jacqueline Callally as Mary O'Brien. Story and ambient music by Ian Gordon. Artwork by Duncan Kay. Title music, Van Melsen's Theme by David Jeffries. Special thanks to Patrick McCone, producer. Copyright 2022 by Horror Babble.